Hello, and welcome to Aesthesia, untold tales of medicine. Join us as we explore what makes us human through stories from the world of healthcare. Some information may have been changed to protect patient privacy, and all stories are the views of the storyteller and do not reflect the views of any institution or employer. Today, fourth-year medical student Matt Baer details his challenges to provide compassion and finds that human connection extends far beyond words. Question. What is the most read book in a psychiatric ward? Answer. The Christian Bible. In my third year of medical school, during my psych rotation, I saw so many patients researching, reading, and preaching the Word of God. Clearly, in those pages they found something they needed. Vengeance against those who had wronged them, a secret prophecy, confirmation of their sanity. Or maybe they saw the central message. You're loved. We, God, humans, nature, whatever, care for you and will take care of you. We understand you. Seeing these patients cling to the Bible felt moving and deeply sad, painful really. A younger, more innocent me might have looked at this and said, seen some grace and faith. But honestly, all I saw was emptiness, in the sense that patients in deep despair who have been uh, told your mind is broken, your body is broken, you're going to die soon, lack something in their lives, something promised by the book they are reading, real human connection. Seeing the Bible readers in the psych ward got me wondering, where else this year have I seen the same emptiness and despair crop up? More importantly, where did I see it being warded off? My third year rotations have taught me that interacting day after day with people who are in pain will do one of three things to you. The first two are burn you out and shut you down. I believe that these things unfold slowly. We don't see them until it's too late. That's why our teachers and mentors have blasted balance and mindfulness into us. They know. They're warning of us of a coming storm whose destructive force, unfortunately, will, we will only know once it has blindsided us. I've suffered from this storm's effects over the last year. I could feel myself detaching and growing numb to my patients. I think of the pregnant heroin addict who was vomiting on my arm and wouldn't sit still for us in the CT scan. Really, all I wanted to do was for this person to shut up and stop jerking us around. I found myself avoiding her and ignoring her complaints of being too nauseated to lie flat. I felt angry, and I retreated when, maybe, I should have tried to comfort her instead. I've also started to retreat into myself. I've thrown more and more energy into cheap thrills that get me out of my head for a minute, rather than engaging my mind in something more meaningful. The more time I spend watching patients in pain, the more I need to numb, numb myself. Binge-watching Netflix or mindlessly surfing the web have become a pleasant escape at the end of the day. On the other hand, I've found that I can also be built up, although the building up process takes a lot more work than I thought. I'm learning that beyond medicine's technical, scientific, and routine aspects, it offers something very spiritual as well. Recently on a slow day, I talked about this with a surgeon. He said something along the lines of, 
based on my personal experience, I'm never going to recommend anyone to medicine. He said, I'm tired. I'm lonely at the end of the day. I'm single. I don't have any free time to meet anyone outside of work. My health is suffering, and I feel like a pawn being moved around by the hospital administration. It was an honest confession, and it made me follow up with, so what makes you come back to work every day? He thought for a moment and then said, there's something about helping people in need, not just helping them get rich or selling them something, but really helping them that makes it all worth it. His words affirmed my growing sense that in order to have a fulfilling life in medicine, you not only need to create balance and wellness, but you also need to find and embrace connections with people during the workday. Then, last week, I had a chance to test out this hypothesis. In the ICU, I helped care for a lady named Rita, who had a very complex surgery with multiple complications. A few days after the surgery, she was getting better but was still on a ventilator. She was so edematous that she looked like an inflated water balloon. Her skin was so fragile, I was afraid the pressure from my stethoscope would rip it. During rounds, I noticed her watching in mute tears. Nurses and residents swarmed around her, checking the ventilator settings, recording the IV drips, and taking blood. At this time of the year, the residents are pretty tired and overworked, as I think they would be the first to admit. So one morning after Rita's physical exam was done, I sat with her and held her swollen hand. There was very little thought in this action, but feelings of shared pain and fear overwhelmed me. I would compare my comforting gesture to a simple reflex. Allowing myself to feel her suffering, I found my hands in Rita's. She tried to mouth words around the breathing tube, but I couldn't make them out. Gripping my hand tighter, she silently began to cry. I tried to look calm, peaceful, and loving, and I know that some part of my face reflected the horror I felt, not the horror of holding her hand, but of really entering into her experience. It was a living nightmare, unable to talk, trapped in a broken and swelling body, barraged by beeping machines and daily needles, and worst of all, deprived of nearly all human contact. Exiting the hospital that night, I walked home in a trance, strangely energized and expansive. On my evening run, I could feel the pavement pounding beneath my feet, but could still hear the steady beep and whir from Rita's room. As unpleasant as I found it to view the world through Rita's eyes, something about the experience empowered both of us. Every morning, when she was in the hospital, I would bounce awake and go check on her and provide my brief morning hand-holding. She visibly brightened when I was in the room. I was tracking her intake and output like a hawk, and ensuring that her wound wasn't breaking down. But I was also monitoring her well-being and titrating my dose of connectedness accordingly. Two days after extubation, when she could finally talk, she hoarsely murmured thank you. Looking into her eyes at that moment, I saw a peace and joy shining out of it that was hard to describe. It made me feel like crying, dancing, and laughing all at the same time. It was a deep connection. It was like gazing into the eyes of God. I try to keep moments like these, which I have been having more and more lately, at the very front of my mind. Doing so has taught me a few things. I've learned that I'm really human. Really, painfully human. I'm afraid of the things humans are usually afraid of. Pain, suffering, loneliness, and loss. 
I've learned that I will burn out and shut down if I'm exposed to those things without taking time to reflect on what's happening. But I've also learned ways to combat the toll that medicine training takes on me. I've worked at building up a system of family and friends to keep me balanced and protected by verbalizing my feelings and experiences to those closest to me. I'm working, using reflections like this one here, to enter a connect, continuous state of searching, looking for opportunities to use my knowledge and compassion to create respite for suffering people. And, most importantly, as I did with Rita, I've started entering into patients' experiences in order to full, more fully connect with them. I'm really glad for the patients who find comfort in the Bible, honestly. But I hope that some patients are also able to find comfort in my presence and my willingness to show up and be there with them when life is hard. As I'm starting to realize our connection with each other might just be the greatest gift medicine has to offer for all of us. And now, an interview with Matt Bear. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your story and just opening up your heart to this podcast. It, it means a lot to us. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Matt, um, what brought you into medicine? So on my personal statement coming into medical school, it was I, I saw my dad uh, help someone out uh, when I was like 10 years old. He did some dental work on them. Uh, chipped their tooth and then he restored the crown and this person went from being absolutely in pain and misery to just having an amazing pair of teeth and that was actually what got me interested in medicine as a whole thing um, and then later on I th think it was during college when I really started doing my volunteering with hospice and I saw kind of the impact that hospice care can have on just like a whole community like the family the grandchildren, everyone. Not not only just the patient, but like this global umbrella event that you can have with with care, healthcare in general. Um, and then that's what kind of got me interested in going into medicine. So I think that that kind of the line from I saw this in dental care. I was like, wow, this is amazing. To I saw this umbrella effect that a hospice care can have, and then. Now I'm doing family medicine, which is what I kind of see. I don't know. Family medicine, I really don't think we should call it family medicine anymore. I feel like... What, what, what would you call it? I feel like I would call it community health care mm. or like community medicine because honestly, we're not really dealing with family units anymore or it's pretty rare to have like a whole family come in. Yeah. But you're dealing with homelessness. You're dealing with kind of infrastructure you're dealing with trying to get kids vaccinated or I mean just kind of the basics of medicine which have been in some ways lost I guess did that kind of this decision to go into family medicine that did that come to a surprise to you or oh. were you just like oh this was always the plan no total surprise because <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like um cardiology I think was the first one I was like I'm going to do cardiology. That'll be cool. And then I was like, nah, I'm going to do OBGYN. I like surgery. Surgery's pretty cool. But I also want to do OBGYN. I have clinic hours. 
And I was like, nah, I'll do surgery, surgery, like general surgery. That sounds kind of cool. And then I was like, that's kind of how like all the decisions yeah, like I, growing yeah. up, it's like, oh, what's cool? <laughs> it's no, yeah, th- yeah. And I was like, well, I think something shifted at some point, because um, it it definitely came down to the heart's cool, surgery's cool, like this is awesome or something like that. And then I got into peds, and then I got into family, um, and it also kind of I don't know. It coalesced with this whole thing of, at the same time that I was looking at peds and looking at family, which was peds was my second one that I was interested in, and then mm-hmm. family kind of became the ultimate. Um, there was this idea that was kind of floating through my head of you need to kind of make a stand on something, um, no matter what that might be. So, um, what do you mean by that? Well. You can you can kind of bounce around between different topics or different uh, goals. I guess would be a way of putting it. So you can try to cure world hunger, and you can bounce from one spot to another uh, in, within the realm of uh, world hunger, mm-hmm. and um, not make much progress. Mm-hmm. But if you take a stand on something uh, and kind of devote your entire life just to that one thing. I will at least fix this or yeah. make a contri- contribution to this. So world hunger is too big. You're never actually going to yeah. like do anything about that. That's a good point, yeah. Or like um, global homelessness. You're never going to do anything about that. Mm-hmm. But you sure can do something about like homeless people who like get kicked out of the emergency room and have to somehow survive on the streets with a ostomy bag. Yeah. Like yeah. that's something you can get passionate about. Yeah. So it was around about the time when I was contemplating peds and family that I was like, I should just make a stand on something and I should pick something and kind of be passionate about it. I should be passionate about something. It's just a classic medical student logical thinking <laughs> of like, I will choose what yeah. my, in my heart will follow. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if I... If I build it, they will come. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like I will rationally build like this framework, and then the emotions around yeah, this thing will follow. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think that's the case with a lot of things in medicine. That we are, we. I mean, honestly, it's a blanket term, but we are so um, type A, I guess, or mm-hmm. rational about things that that's honestly the only way we can view the world. Um, is from kind of a standpoint of rational and then emotions follow. At least it seems that way. I don't know. So <laughs> so how do you feel about burnout? That's, that's my next question for you, Matt. Um, mm, you yeah. you brought that up, and, you, and it's an, an integral to your story. Um, third year, you're hopping around a lot of different rotations and lifestyles and career paths. Um, and it sounds like from your story, you already started feeling it a bit in third year. Can you go into that? I think, well, my my experience with burnout wasn't as great as I think other people's were. You like, don't have to compare burnout. Oh, no, yeah, I'm yeah. not comparing burnout. But yeah. I think there's definitely a shift that you can sense in yourself as you're going into third year especially. You've just come from a whole bunch of didactics, academics, uh, studying a whole bunch, kind of isolating yourself. 
and then you're really exposed to the meat and potatoes of medicine, at least at, at this school. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of isolate you from the clinical training until third year. And then when you're thrust into that, you're kind of faced with the whole reality of like human suffering, which sucks. And yeah, you almost forget about that part first yeah. two years. The first two years you're doing all this like uh, you know, like learning about lupus and you're learning yeah. about rheumatoid and you're it's learning It's like you're about, learning about others, but you're really, it's about yourself yeah. and just passing tests. Yeah, it's, it really is. It's all inside your head. And when you're asked in third year to all of a sudden apply that knowledge to a real human being, the I think the natural response, especially since you've been trained for two years to stay inside your head, is to stay inside your head. Mm. And that's what I think I said in my piece here uh, is bad. I think that leads in a way to to burnout and mm. to uh, to kind of shutting down or shutting off. Um, what is what is shutting down and shutting off look like? So as a, someone yeah, in the medical field, burnout I feel like is you just can't come into work. Like you can, you're just done. Mm. Um, it's almost like a form of job depression. Um, and then I think shutting off, you can be shut off and not burnt out. So if you take the things that you've learned in your first two years of medical school, which is I stay inside my head and I just put my head down and get good grades, uh, you can apply that same thing to substitute the get good grades with get good patient outcomes. Mm. And you can do that your entire career. Mm. And I think uh, those people are just shut off. Um and they, they don't necessarily burn out, but they just don't really get to what I consider to be the meat and potatoes of medicine. Um, and then, so that's, that's shut down or shut off. And then burnout, I think, is you just get to a point where something just doesn't click. Because honestly, if, if you look at what medicine is, it's just a bunch of paperwork. Like, <laughs> just charting. It's just charting. <laughs> like you're, you go in uh, at the beginning of the day, you open up a chart. You look at the the labs. You look at the levels. You look at this. You look, it's it's a lot of staring at computer screens nowadays, and that can burn people out. Like yeah. how how do you get to a point where um, you can enjoy just like looking at graphs all day, every single day, for your entire life, and like documenting the most mundane, boring things? Urine output. Urine output. Oh my gosh, I'm tracking someone's urine. Like <laughs> so, if you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about that in any other job. If you said your job is to sit in a dark room for 14 hours a day <laughs> and look at someone pee, that's an awful job. You're like, I don't care how much you get paid for that. <laughs> no, I'm, yeah. I'm out. So you then, I think that's, that's how people burn out is uh, they kind of separate themselves. They, they take the things that uh, they learned in the first two years, which got them great grades. It got them honors. It it just they flew, they flew through those first two years, and then you apply those same principles to a third year uh, student, and they don't work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, there's there's definitely a shift that is happening. Uh, I think our school's doing a pretty good job as far as kind of bringing that to the the forefront of everyone's mind. Is that you need to like think about what you're actually doing and recognize these people as people. Mm. not patients, um, which is hard to do. 
which also I think I talked about. Yeah, a bit when easier. you had that um, uh, patient, heroin addict, or just human, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, throw up on you while you were trying to get the CT scan done. Mm-hmm. Um, what what were you thinking in that moment? Honestly, it was just like I. It was at the end of a long day, and it was we were in the trauma bay, I think. And she was pregnant. She had slipped and fallen. And I just kind of held all these facts in my head at that point. Like there was a person throwing up on my arm. And we needed to get the CT scan done. And I'm just, I'm just done. Like yeah. she is, she's just annoying me at this point. Um, and I think in that, in that sense, it was just a, trying to separate myself from the patient. Uh which I think was actually necessary. Like, now that I think back on it, like, the only way that I could get through that is to just to, like, shut down. Is there so an maybe, appropriate amount of disconnect? Yeah, yeah. I think in in, sense of, in places like that, um, I only brought only brought it up in the in the piece just because that was kind of what I could think of at the moment. But, yeah, um, but, I mean, there's, there's probably plenty of other times where, you know. But that's the thing. So that's a dramatic like kind of eye-catching thing uh, that I brought up. But the uh, the times that, like, you actually, um, uh, you kind of miss out on connecting from people, you miss those. You'll miss those because you're not actually looking for them, you know? So if you're, if you just walk past a patient who's screaming in bed, like, so you're walking down the hallways and someone's going like, help, help, and you just hear this, like, old little man crawling out or crying out from one of the, the beds there. That's that's a misconnection, and you just walk right past it. And honestly, mm. I think all of us have done that, um, and you don't really pay attention to it. So comparing the patient that threw up on you versus the patient who was in the ICU and you held her hand, Mm-hmm. How did you see those patients differently? I think one of them, one of the moms, honestly, was just kind of needling me, and I retreated. Just I think in a in a form of self defense. So mm. the patient in the CT scanner there, there was a there's a form of poking and prodding that just caused me to kind of retract a little bit. And what was that poking and prodding? Uh, vomiting on my arm for one thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. But, I mean, that's the other thing is, even though that did happen, um, it doesn't mean that you, you should just kind of shut off from from that person. Um, honestly, it's an invitation to kind of jump in and be like, oh, man, I'm really sorry. Like, uh, The person uh, in the ICU, though, that was that was more of a, like gut response and I think I just had my my gates open in that uh, like kind of in the emotional sense where after seeing what was happening to her ever like for a few days here and also being in the surgery and kind of seeing all the stuff that had happened to her um, then watching her in the ICU uh, I kind of felt like I needed like I needed to jump into the connectiveness care mm. and really kind of getting down on her level. So that was, I kind of, I put it in 
as well that it was almost it felt like a reflex like kind of like the patellar reflex where you just hit the hammer and it just kind of goes bing and so it wasn't even like you had thought about this oh i need to connect with patients no. more and no. then you held her hand but it Not was literally just a in the moment it really was it felt i think i said that i was like testing out a hypothesis honestly the hypothesis was kind of like subliminal yeah it was it was something that was just kind of just there. like a thought like what if i just yeah held her hand like what yeah what would happen uh not even a thought like yeah. honestly there was very little thought that went into this but i think it was just kind of leaving yourself open to mm. it and so there's no there's no actual like conscious thought to these sorts of like deep empathetic at, yeah at least that first time at least and then the first you, time yeah, yeah and then that's after what, that true. it was like yeah yeah you're obviously like yeah i'm gonna go back and hold her hand it almost became like a a connection between you two yeah and i think this also this kind of speaks back to your your thing with um uh the c-section and mm-hmm. kind of pulling the baby out that for me I started to kind of crave that. Like, that part was the one where I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is it. Yeah. And it's the the idea that... Um, it's like an emotional rush. Like, your heart just starts yeah, beating again. Like, it really oh, wow. is. <laughs> this it's is like, why I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the thing that you get to a point where, um, uh, like you said, the first time that this happens, it's almost on accident. Mm. It's almost like you just kind of stumble into it. But it's not really on accident. So you ha- you have to you have to leave yourself open to it. You have to kind of yeah. do this thing where you're you're constantly checking yourself feedback loop. Um but then when it happens all of a sudden this floodgate opens and you start looking around with like new eyes. You start seeing the person who's crying out in their bed and you say that's a that's someone who needs help. Yeah. And you go for that. Um and you start to recognize where these empathetic human connection issues can happen. And how much would you say in these that our job is in medicine, like fixing people versus being present with people? Uh, oh man, I think they. It's kind of like a hundred percent of one and a hundred percent of the other. Like <laughs> That's a good, ha- good cop out answer. Yeah. yeah no. 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 <laughs> But I think I don't think you can do one without the other. So a surgeon, a surgeon can be the best surgeon that they can possibly be, but nothing, nothing is going to stop the patient from going out and ruining a really good surgery. Mm. Like, um, that's just that's just the way the humans are. But the really the art part of the whole healing uh, healing principle is you have a surgeon who cuts does an amazing job the procedure is perfect and then afterwards the human connection is perfect to a point where the surgeon is able to communicate to the the patient on like a deep level not just like a superficial information informational level uh you need to do this this and this for post-op like but really gets to know the patient and then that's where like I think real healing takes place. Yeah. So it is 100% of one and 100% of the other because we're not going to get better unless we get better at doing better procedures and better treatments and better meds. Yeah. But I think at the same time, we're not going to get better if we can't like connect with the patients that we're 
trying to like give this information to none of our patients will be like will listen to us for one no, if they, they no. really they don't like oh us they just shut shut off like i don't yeah. trust this guy yada 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 um maybe just give everyone hypertension because we get make everyone stressed when we walk in the room exactly <laughs> yeah like, i mean that's the other yeah i mean gosh the whole idea of like a white coat syndrome oh my gosh like there's a there's a whole syndrome based off of us. <laughs> what are we doing here? What are we doing wrong? And 100% of one and 100% of another. Where do you see that in your future patients that you interact with? Do you try to have that same connection you had with that woman in the ICU with like every single patient? Or are you like, you know, I'm, I'm going to give this standard of care and then maybe occasionally if I can get that threshold of connecting at that same level, that would be nice for like once a day, like having that real personal connection. I would like to have it with everyone, but I don't think it's possible. I don't, I know that's kind of maybe defeatist at this point and I should have a little bit more optimism. Yeah, end of the podcast. <laughs> end of the podcast. Close it off now. <laughs> um, no, I, th- I think maybe a few years from now I can get to a point where I can do that on a daily basis, but it's really hard because being... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I it's mean, it's uh, like you're saying, that the, the, the surgical aspect and then perfecting that personal aspect. Oh that gosh. doesn't come after a year of practice. It no. comes several years. And th- I mean, that's the whole part where they talk about art. Yeah. The art part is that human connection part is digging deep into like that aspect of medicine. And I think that's the part that people find fun. Mm. Like after after the whole joy of like C-sections is over, the the fun part is talking to the the newborn mom. Yeah. Yeah, and you did it. Like you're the one who did it. That's that's cool, but that coolness will wear off eventually. And I think the the part that doesn't wear off the part that's kind of like hardwired into our heads as humans, but that we get the pleasure of like having as a profession as doctors is connecting. Yeah. So what advice do you give to people who are on that grind, whether or not like in their surgery rotation and have never worked a full-time job before and now working 80 hour week, people who are just, feel like they're at the end of their rope just from the demands like what can you say to kind of help get past feeling burnout i think for me and i only know this for me um i think reflection is a good starting point continuously going back and thinking about your day thinking about your actions um in kind of a neutral light like you can you can pull out positives you can pull out negatives but really coming back to it and saying like this is my day this is what happened these were my emotions and just looking that kind of not avoiding the negatives or yeah overly just only reflecting on the negatives but just like everything yeah there's a reflection technique that was taught to me back in high school i think creighton does it as well where you you look at it and you um uh you look at your day in the positives or the lights the darks and then you kind of smooth both of those out and you just look at it Mm. um 
but you embrace the lights, you embrace the dark side of the day, but then you have to take a step back. And I think that's, for me personally, that's helped because I, I just do that really quick at the end of the day. Um, and that kind of has centered me as I've gone through these years. Um, besides that, honestly, just try and be a regular human being too. This is such a job that like you can, you can end up talking to people for hours about these like issues outside of like real life, but well, not real life. Oh my gosh. I just called medical school real life, <laughs> <laughs> but getting into real life from medical school is hard. Um, and just kind of leaving all of that stuff at the door when you enter into the world of real life is I think important to do. Mm. On a lighter note, um, what has been something you've read or watched recently that you've really enjoyed and would suggest for our listeners? Ooh, read or watched recently. Right now, okay, so right now I am reading a book called Into the Silence by David Wade. It's uh, about the first expedition off to Everest following Mallory and uh, Howard Burry, the two guys who kind of like explored the whole thing around uh, Mount Everest. It's fascinating. Like it kind of, I mean, it's only, it was back in like 1920. So less than, almost less than 100 years ago. And honestly, it's kind of like a trip back in time. Like a long way back in time, it feels like. But it wasn't that long ago. What do you like about it? The challenge or the... The adventure part, yeah. I think it, it's also, it puts into perspective a lot of the cultural shifts that have happened over really a short period of time. The, the way that people interact with other people has not really changed a lot, but has changed a lot, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. there's, there's people in the expedition party who are like, they're super into cultural connectedness and like being engaged with the people in Tibet. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who just aren't. And I think there's there's something kind of nice about seeing this uh, this expedition as far as there's a little bit of continuity there. And then uh, just one more question. What is one of your favorite uh, wellness activities? Something just completely unrelated to work or productivity? Rock climbing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, indoor, outdoor? Right now, I'm mostly doing indoor because I don't have the money. Time. Yeah. Or time. <laughs> or time. Yeah. yeah. But also, I don't want to break my leg. Yeah, that's a good but point. Bouldering is dope. An incredible workout. And an incredible for workout. the forearms. For the for and also, I definitely have like ten trigger figures now. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> like when you look at professional rock climbers' hands, they are rocks in of themselves. They I are know. Just thick and calloused and then i just look at my own i'm like oh that's why i, I like, fail on the easiest like runs on the <laughs> in the like little meat gym. sausages i know they're insane yeah alex honnold i, I don't know if you've watched his oh uh, i have doctor- watched oh, it oh yeah <laughs> several times several times his hands are insane it's like, crazy yeah yeah so once um, again meat like little meat sausages <laughs> <laughs> callous little meat sausages no, callous little meat sausages. so when you see yourself as a, a your ideal vision of yourself as a doctor it is a doctor who's great with patients excellent and just medical ability and has just 
Callous, <laughs> massive hands <laughs> from rock climbing. He's like, hi there, <laughs> Dr. Bear. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for joining us tonight and on this episode. Um, yeah, you just sharing your story, your heart, and your vision for medicine. Um, this is what it's all about and making those connections. It starts here with conversation. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asthesia. Thank you to our team, Amy, Brayden, Sean, and Father Kevin. And as always, we're your hosts, Zach and Cooper. We look forward to sharing with you next time. Thank you.